Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. C.S. Lewis scholar Michael Ward is Senior Research Fellow at Blackfriars Hall at the University of Oxford and Professor of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. He's the author of Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. This is one of those rare books that change the way whole swaths of academics and general readers understand a beloved author's work. I know it changed the way I read the Narnia books. I was surprised to learn that Michael Ward also has had a career in feature films, sort of. In the movie The World Is Not Enough, he handed James Bond a pair of x-ray spectacles. You can see a picture of this memorable moment in cinematic history at his website, michaelward.net. Michael Ward, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Good to speak to you. I say this morning. It's not even morning where you are, and uh, who knows uh, when people are listening to this, whether it's morning or not. But in any case, so you are the you wrote a book called Planet Narnia that came out about, what, 12 years ago, I guess. And that book, it's, it's a book that I intended not to be convinced by, uh, because you, it, you make a, a very surprising claim about the Narnia books. Um, and I actually didn't read it for a long time because I thought there's just no way I want to be convinced by, uh, by this seemingly odd idea. And then I, when I finally got around to reading it, actually enough people told me that it was a convincing book that I, uh, that I read it and, um, and I was convinced myself. So, um, in, in spite of all, um, <laughs> you you convinced me. I, I think maybe you have heard this before from people. They intended not to be convinced by Planet Narnia and were. That's right, yes. Uh, one of the first people to say that was uh, Alan Jacobs, who, who kindly provided an endorsement for the book. Ah, well, he, so... He started out with total skepticism and gradually was he had his castle of skepticism demolished. <laughs> well, can you uh, real quickly sort of summarize the, the thesis of, of Planet Narnia? Yeah, in essence, the thesis is that there are seven chronicles of Narnia because there are seven heavens uh, or seven planets in medieval cosmology. And C.S. Lewis, being a medievalist, knew all about those seven heavens, those seven planets. He writes about them extensively and uh, described them as spiritual symbols of permanent value, which were especially worthwhile in his own generation. And it's those seven heavens or planets with their various qualities and attributes and um, influences that uh, shaped Lewis's um, approach in each of the seven Narnia Chronicles. Uh, you used the phrase, you said that, that Lewis... Uh, uh, considered the the seven heavens to be spiritual symbols of, um, I can't remember how you phrased it. Were you quoting him or are you just summarizing? Yeah, I was quoting him there. Uh, spiritual symbols of permanent value. Of permanent value, yeah. Yeah. He says that in, uh, in an article he wrote in 1935. So that's about 15 years before, well, it is 15 years before he published The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And uh, he said that um, when uh, publishing a long, complicated poem that he himself wrote about the seven heavens. And uh, he, he gave a little explanation as to why he, he was bothering with, with so much imaginative energy uh, spent on this seemingly 
old-fashioned antiquarian subject. And he right. said, it's because they are of continuing value in the human imagination. Can you, um, I, I suspect um, a lot of people listening to this podcast won't have uh, opinions about uh, why the seven heavens, the, the seven planets are even worth giving the attention to. Um, why, so why, why, why should we care about the, the, the seven planets, the seven heavens? Well, uh, it depends how, how deeply you want to understand the Narnia Chronicles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, I mean, th this is one of the things I, I discuss in my book, the various attempts that scholars have made over the years to find some kind of coherent design or imaginative blueprint to the Narnia series. Because uh, on the surface, they don't seem to have very obvious, um, you know, underpinnings or, or overarching schemes to them, uh, you know, right. either as individual stories or as a, a series of seven books. Um, you know, three of the books are very, very clearly, it would seem, dependent upon biblical source material. Mm -hmm. You've got The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe retelling the gospel story. You've got The Magician's Nephew, as it were, retelling the Genesis creation account. And you've got The Last Battle retelling within the Narnian subcreated world a version of the final judgment and the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. So the scriptural parallels in those three stories are very clear and obvious, but those are only three out of seven books. Right. You know, when you turn to the other four books in the Narnia series, it's not very obvious how those relate in the same way to scriptural sources. And that's why lots of scholars and critics have said, well, there must be some uniformly uh, explanatory scheme that Lewis used because he wasn't a, a slapdash or a random writer or thinker. Right. And various, various different theories have been advanced like the seven deadly sins or the seven sacraments or or any seven that people can think of basically <laughs> but but the one seven which is all over lewis's writings namely the seven heavens amazingly had not been looked at seriously before i did mm -hmm. so uh, how does how does understanding this the seven heavens um uh change our, our understanding of of you know Pick a, pick a Narnia book. Um. Okay. Well, um, I suppose in some ways the most obvious is um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay. Um, now, it must be pointed out to begin with what the seven heavens were, you know, which planets they represented. And the, and the best way to explain that is by reference to the seven days of the week. Because, of course, it's it's after these seven planets that we name the days of the week. Why is Saturday Saturday? Because it's named after Saturn. Why is Sunday Sunday? Because it's named after the sun. Monday is named after the moon. Yeah. And, and likewise with the other four, though it's a bit less obvious uh, in, in those four cases, because for some reason we use the Norse, planetary deities rather than the Roman ones. Mm -hmm. But if you think in Spanish or French, it's, it's obvious how Tuesday is Mars's day, Wednesday is Mercury's day, Thursday is Jupiter's day, and Friday is Venus's day. So those are the seven heavens, the sun, the moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn. And so the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, let's talk about that. You could almost guess which planet that was written to, to correspond with from the title, because the voyage of the dawn treader, 
you know, this is a journey towards the eastern edge of the world where the sun rises. And, uh, you know, the last few chapters of that book are absolutely drenched with sunlight. Yeah. Uh, and the children on board ship, they, they scoop up pailfuls of water from the sea and they find that it's more like drinking light than it is like drinking water. Uh, but earlier on in the story too, there have been all sorts of solar elements, if you have eyes to see them. Uh, for instance, in, in that episode where they discover a, a magic pool on an island which turns everything to gold. Now, of course, gold was the sun's metal. The sun would turn base metal into gold, according to medieval thinking. Um, and likewise, uh, there's that episode in the Dark Island where Lucy prays a desperate prayer and then a beam of light falls upon the ship and she looks along the beam of light and sees Aslan within it. And when they meet Aslan at the eastern edge of the world, he's scattering light from his mane. You know, the, the sun imagery, the gold imagery, the the imagery of divine illumination is everywhere in that book. And once you see that the solar symbolism is Lewis's imaginative blueprint, then The Voyage of the Dawn Treader becomes an even more beautiful and brilliant book. Yeah. Well, um, and I, I, I do love the way the, um, the planets um, enrich our, our understanding of, of, these, uh, of these stories. Uh, how did you even come to notice these patterns do you, like what what was the what was the where did that even start well it, it, i suppose it started fundamentally in in my awareness that scholars had been looking for some kind of overarching pattern or scheme to the series mm -hmm. uh, and i myself had made a half-hearted attempt to to find a shakespearean basis to the to the septet because there are lots of Shakespearean allusions within the Narnia Chronicles. But although I could make that work reasonably well for three of the books or four of the books, it didn't work very well for all seven. And I, and I eventually abandoned that idea and gave it up as a bad job. Um, but many years later, when I was doing my PhD research into C.S. Lewis, I spent 18 months looking at um, his understanding of wordless communication and how he thought that some of the most important things were best said silently or implicitly. Uh -huh. um, and so after 18 months of exploring that department of his thought, I then one night was lying in bed reading his poem about the planets when I suddenly thought, golly, there are seven medieval heavens and there are seven Narnia chronicles. Is it possible that they relate to each other? one-to-one, -one, and it became pretty clear to me that they did. Um, so I wasn't di directly seeking it out at that point in my PhD researches, but the very fact that I had had this sort of question at the back of my mind for many years meant that, that as it were, when, the, when I'd positioned my mind um, according to Lewis's own, you know, mental intellectual orientation sufficiently, then I suddenly saw what he was up to. And it was, yeah. it was a, you know, a kind of eureka moment. And I mm -hmm. felt stunned because I was suddenly seeing in the Narnia books all manner of further sophistication and meaning when I thought I already knew all that they had to give. Yeah. So um, as, as I think you know, Michael, this is a podcast about writing, about writing for writers. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so 
I, I'm interested to, I, I, as I was reviewing um, Planet Narnia uh, in preparation, I, I, I was kind of looking in, I was thinking in terms of how is it that, you know, what is, how is any of this relevant um, to writers? Um, in other words, not just as readers or as, as uh, you know, literature scholars, but, but as writers. And, um, and I was especially interested in, in the idea and the question of why was uh, Lewis quiet about, about this pattern? And I, I am especially interested in your, um, the, an idea that you delve into that, um, that the music of the spheres, you know, the, the, um, the, the seven planets um, in the medieval tradition and, and much older than medieval tradition, the idea was that, that in their movements, they were making music and music that we, as those of us who live on the earth, can't hear. Those of us who live below the moon mm-hmm. um, can't hear. Um, and, and so, uh, and of course, as, as you mentioned in your book, um, the silent planet is earth, right? It, it, and if you're, if you're elsewhere in the universe besides the earth, you can hear the music, but you can't hear the music here um and i think that's i think that's very relevant um to the world of a writer right the the idea that um that we are as as writers we are somehow making uh audible um the music that that's there all along Um, you know we're not inventing music we are we are uh making you know the, the music is there and we're we're making it um something that that, that that readers can hear um and you quote uh t.s Eliot, who, who spoke of music that is heard so deeply that it's not heard at all I, I love that um so that's not a question i guess i'm just opening that that topic um yeah okay so I think there are two main ways in which to answer the the underlying question beneath what you've just said, uh, which you know why 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 would Lewis do this, and what does it have to offer any writer? And, and the two things I would say are, are one literary and two theological. From the literary point of view, Lewis believed that um, a success in writing came about through. Um, secretly evoking powerful associations. He said that expressions in literature should not merely state, but suggest. Mm -hmm. And that if the mechanism in a poem uh, was too visible, um, then we would be turned off. It's like what um, Keats says, the poet Keats, that we dislike art that has a palpable design upon us. What the reader is made to do for himself has a particular importance, Lewis said, and an influence which can't evade our consciousness won't go very deep. So for all those reasons, he valued as a writer, when writing about anything really, um, silences, suggestions, and secret associations so that the reader would not feel patronized or over manipulated. You know, it's a Socratic approach, isn't it? That yeah. you, ask, you ask questions of the of the reader or the student, as it were. You don't spoon feed the, the reader or the student with everything you want them to receive. You, you set them up, you set them going so that they learn 
almost without realizing that they're learning. That's the best method of, of writing and of teaching generally. Yeah. So that's the literary reason for doing this. If Lewis wants to communicate the, the, seven char- seven, the characteristics of the seven planets, well, he, he could do it directly. And indeed, in other departments of his output, he did do it directly. He, there's yeah. a whole chapter on the heavens in his introduction to the medieval worldview, the discarded mm-hmm. image. And as I said, he wrote a whole poem explicitly detailing the various influences of the planets. But in Narnia, he wanted to communicate the, the planetary personalities in, in a more subtle and artistic way. And, you know, there's that old saying, isn't there, that the, the art is in concealing the art. Yeah. The art is yeah. in concealing the art. You mustn't show your working too obviously or the reader will, you know, wise up to you and, and the magic won't work. Yeah. You know, there's got to be some misdirection, as all magicians know. There's got to be some sleight of hand. And then you're impressed. You're, you marvel at what the conjurer has been able to bring off. Yeah. So that's, that's the secret to all good imaginative writing, whether it be in, in, in fiction or poetry or, or drama or film writing or whatever. You don't want to be too direct. You want to be tangential and implicit. Um, so that's the literary reason for doing this, uh, what writers can learn from Lewis's example. But then theologically, there's a whole dimension to it as well, which is that, you know, Lewis used these seven planetary archetypes uh, not just for, not just to, you know, amuse himself from a literary and historical point of view, but because he wanted to say something about his Christian faith, you know, he's he's talking about the Christian life in each of the Narnia books fundamentally and how the children relate to Aslan. Yeah. But it was a fundamental part of Lewis's belief about the Christian life that we can't study God as if God were a, a subject to be, to be got up, you know, like you would yeah. study a railway timetable. You can't put God on the laboratory table and cut him open and, and look at him as if from an external spectator's point of view. You, you can't do that with God because God is the, f- God is the, the source of all being. Yeah. God is the very means by which we know anything at all. So our knowledge of God is in a fundamentally different category from our knowledge of, of created things. Because it's by God that we have the capacity to know at all in the first place. So for Lewis, there's a, a fundamentally participatory element to our relationship with God, that we're already in God in one sense before we know anything about God. We have an enjoyment of God before we have any kind of contemplation of God. And it's that kind of intrinsic, innate, inescapable, participatory knowledge of God that Lewis is symbolizing by means of the planetary symbol in each Narnia chronicle. Um, so that the children in each book, and indeed we, the reader, as we read each book, we don't know that we're being, as it were, upheld by a, a mighty solar spirit in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is informing everything and coloring everything and shaping everything to a particular end. We, we, don't, we don't perceive that with our contemplative intellect we experience it from within. We're just thrown into a solar world, as it were, and we're left to, to breathe it in 
unconsciously, as it were. And that's how, in, in many respects, our knowledge of God goes, that we, we, we know God much more like breathing an atmosphere than we know him like studying a subject. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's Lewis in his book on the Psalms. And so, again, you know, all, all that I said about the literary purposes behind this, the indirection and the, and the secret associations, which, which uh, pertain to all good writing, they pertain doubly so to the communication of a Christian's relationship with God. Hmm. And this idea of you of enjoyment of God before we can we we enjoy God before we can contemplate God is is pretty interesting. It seems to me pretty relevant to uh, to the work of a writer with um, theological concerns, a, a, a storyteller, you know, with with theological concerns. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and as you say, uh, Lewis, uh, in his academic work, um, was speaking directly of these of these matters, and in his um, and in his stories, he was creating atmosphere that we could breathe and inhale. Yes, um, absolutely. And then that in that in that atmosphere, that's what really um, that's what really does is, its work on us. Is that ability to, um, you know, the, the fact that we can inhabit this world um, uh, rather than uh, treat it as a subject. Um, that's, that's good stuff. I love it. Yes. And I think that's one of the, the ways in which, you know, inexperienced writers, junior writers and, and less good writers, they fall down when they're trying to communicate aspects of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Because they turn their fiction into a, into a thinly disguised uh, scripture lesson. Or, you know, they want to communicate points of doctrine. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that in itself, of course. Lewis does plenty of that himself. But the point is that before you ever get to those, you know, discrete moments of, of theological apprehension, um, you're already living a life in which... God is, as I said, you know, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, to quote St. Yeah. Paul in the, in the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah. You know, long, long before we have knowledge about God in a theologically astute sense, we already have knowledge of God by virtue of the fact that we are God's creatures, that mm. God has made us and is sustaining us in being from moment to moment. And um, it's that much more fundamental and essential component of the spiritual life that I think so many would-be Christian writers fail to appreciate. They think it's all about, you know, as it were, ticking boxes on a doctrinal grid uh, or communicating particularly intense moments of spiritual experience. And as I say, there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but they, they only, they are secondary. They come after this more foundational element of the relationship. Yeah. You know, uh, Flannery O'Connor talks about the idea that you don't have to understand a symbol for that symbol to do its work on you. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and, indeed, and I, I the symbols work, sometimes the symbols work best when you don't even know they are symbols. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it takes a certain amount of, you know, of confidence. Um, you know, do, do you really believe that the world is shot through with meaning? And if you do, um, 
then you know one one thing that that means is that it's not my job to create meaning. It's not it's not my job to you know if if, if I truly believe that the world is shot through with meaning, that I can depict the world, um, the world God made, and the meaning in one way or another will make its make its way out. Well, um, yeah, let's hope so. If if you are a, a <laughs> if you're a half decent writer, then it will right. make its way out. But you know, the, there's nothing nothing inevitable about that. <laughs> that's, uh, a, that's true. You know, that's why there is such a thing as a bad writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but but this idea, and, and I'm you. Uh, this seems this seems relevant, and you were quoting um, a writer uh, Farrer. Our ignorance of what we are does not make us cease to be, and our unawareness of the profound levels of our imagination neither abolishes them nor presents, prevents them from acting upon our wills, nor even upon the wills and minds of others. Um, and your, your point there being, um, you know, th this was in the context of, of you talking about, you know, why Lewis didn't feel the need to explain himself. Um, you know, with, with these, with the seven heavens. Um, and the fact that we, um, that we don't know, uh, what reality exists outside us and whether we acknowledge it or not, um, it is, um, uh, having its impact on us. And it seems to me the, the, in, in to such a large degree, the writer's job is to, um, is to, to make, make obvious or, or, or make visible that which um, most of us aren't aren't paying close enough attention to to notice. Well, I, I'm not sure that I would entirely agree with you. Um, okay, I think it's because the whole point <laughs> the whole point of my book, Planet Narnia, is indeed to make visible something which which I believe is there in the Narnia books. Yeah, but but. C.S. Lewis himself carefully hid it. He yeah. did not. He did not make it visible. Mm -hmm. um, but he 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 nonetheless made it knowable. Can, can, I mean, that's yeah. what I'm trying to get at. That we we yeah, know yeah. we know things even without knowing that we know them. That's yes. The yes. Thank in, you. That, that's... in that quotation you just gave from Austin Farrer, he's our ignorance of what we are does not make us cease to be and our unawareness of the profound levels of our imagination neither abolishes them nor prevents them from acting upon our wills. So there he's saying um, one's awareness is not the key thing. Uh -huh. It's the very fact of, of imaginative power that matters, not, not the degree to which we are aware of it. And, and that's, you know, that goes back to my point about Keats and the palpable design, that if the author, if the writer makes their design too obvious, too, too, um, too uh, visible, yeah. so, that the, so that the reader does become aware of it, as it were, then the reader begins to feel manipulated or, or patronized. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing subtle about it. There's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing profound about it because it's all there on the on the dashboard of of the screen of his mind, as it were. There's nothing getting below the radar. Yeah. Um, so the point is to communicate your point without making it 
um, obvious. Yeah. Okay. I, I love that that clarification. Thank you for for uh, pushing back on that because that's that's great. I mean, the, the difference between making it the difference between making something knowable and making something visible is yeah. an interesting distinction and a helpful one. Yeah, and it it it, it all you know ties back into this fundamental distinction in Lewis's thought, the distinction between looking at something and looking along something, and this was a distinction that he discovered in his mid twenties, and he he said that. As soon as he discovered it, he immediately regarded it as an indispensable tool of thought. And um, I think you, you can't properly understand C.S. Lewis unless you understand this distinction in his thought between looking at and looking along. He, he uses an image of a, of a beam of light in a tool shed. It's written in a, a short article called Meditation in a Tool Shed. Yeah. And you probably know it, but for readers who might not be familiar with it, let me just quickly summarize. He, he, he's, he's standing in his dark tool shed one sunny day. It's bright outside, but it's dark inside. And, and through a crack at the top of the door, he can see a beam of light slanting down into the tool shed. And he can see little particles of dust floating in that sunbeam. And he uses that as an image of one kind of consciousness that we have, which he calls contemplation. When you're outside an experience, uh, inspecting it from a distance. And then he moves his position so that the beam of light is no longer falling on the floor of the tool shed, but now falling directly on his eyes. And instantly he says everything changed. He no longer saw the tool shed. And most importantly of all, he no longer even saw the beam of light. Because he looked along the beam of light. And by looking along it, he saw something quite different. He didn't see the beam. He saw that which the beam of light illuminated, namely the crack at the top of the door and the leaves on the tree moving in the wind outside. And that's, a, and that's what he calls enjoyment consciousness, looking along the beam. When you're standing inside an experience, you're not holding it at arm's length, inspecting it uh, with kind of supposed scientific neutrality. No, you're participating in it. You're inhabiting it. It's becoming personal to you. And that's the much deeper and, and more humane way in which we know things. Uh, but it, it inevitably involves a kind of invisibility because once you're inside the beam, the beam vanishes. It's no longer an object of your vision. It's now the medium of your vision. And uh, that's so fundamental to Lewis's whole approach as a thinker and writer that every would-be writer, I think, ought to study that meditation in a tool shed and, yeah. and look at the implications for their fiction or poetry. Yeah. Is it, is it fair to say that in the discarded image in the chapter on the planets, he was looking at the beam and he was looking along the beam in, in uh, the Narniad? Yes, absolutely. That's precisely the distinction. That yeah. in, in the discarded image, the chapter on the heavens, he's laying out from a literary historical point of view how the medieval people understood the, the seven influences, the seven heavens. And then in that poem that I mentioned, he's giving his own um, contemplative account, but this time from a poetic point of view, not a scholarly point of view. And indeed, in the, in the Ransom trilogy, the Cosmic trilogy, he uses the seven heavens again, and, and again, does it directly and explicitly so that the reader is aware that this is the, the, the subject of, the, of, of, of what they're reading. But in Narnia... He uses the seven heavens in a way which circumvents our 
contemplative consciousness. He just throws us into a jovial, a Jupiter-filled world in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and a, a Mars-filled world in Prince Caspian, and a Sun-filled world in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and so on seven times over. Uh, so he's, you know, he's practicing, as it were, what he preaches elsewhere about the importance of of communicating not through savoir knowledge, but through connaître knowledge. You know, that distinction between the two modes of knowing, savoir and connaître in French, to know about something, savoir, or to know of something, connaître, knowledge by acquaintance. Mm -hmm. It's the same in Spanish, saber and connoisseur, and you get it in lots of languages, actually. Um, that it's, it's built into the very structure of the language, these two modes of knowledge that we have. Uh, but in English, for some reason, we, we don't have that distinction. We, we have to flesh it out by talking about knowledge by acquaintance, which is enjoyment consciousness, um, and knowledge about things from the outside, which is contemplation consciousness. Um, that's, that's such a helpful distinction. Um, Real quickly, is it in the is it in the in the discarded image that Lewis talks about um, our notion of of outer space as being somehow empty that that sort of came along in the I guess in the twentieth century of um, is so different from the earlier understandings of of the universe in which um, you know there's color and and dance and music and movement um, in. in even the, the word outer space, you know, suggests an emptiness that, that wasn't part of the medieval way of thinking about the universe. Um, Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Um, because Lewis was a, a scholar of the, of the 16th century, he knew all about the, uh, the, the shift from the Copernican cosmos to the, to the, uh, to the post-Copernican, you know, and then the Newtonian and then the Einsteinian cosmos that we now believe ourselves to be living in. So he, he followed these uh, paradigm shifts in scientific cosmological understanding very closely from his professional scholarly point of view. And yeah, he, he, he homes in on this word space mm -hmm. as an indication of, of, what, of, of one of the things that changed in the process, that to the medieval mind, you didn't look up and out into empty space. That word wasn't available to you. It's a 17th century word. It was coined by the poet Milton in Paradise Lost, in that modern sense. I did, uh, I did not realize that, that, that Milton was the originator of that. Yeah. Of um, Lewis points that out in the discarded image, and, and the Oxford English Dictionary backs him up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before the 17th century, you literally could not have said that you were looking up into space because that word wasn't available to you. You would have been looking up into the heavens, the firmament, and, and there you would have had a very different experience. Not, you wouldn't have felt that you were looking up into hollowness and blackness and vacuity. You would have felt you were looking into um, a realm of, of profound signification. And indeed, this, this place of the music of the spheres, this perpetual glory that the, the seven heavens were singing constantly to themselves and to God, um, but which we on earth couldn't hear because we were always hearing it. It was yeah. inaudible to us because it formed the backdrop to our auditory experience. Absolutely. You know, it's like when you live next door to a, 
an airport or a railway station. Yeah. Sooner or later, you you just tune out the noise of the of the aircraft or the trains. Um, and Lewis talks about people who are born next to the great cataract on the Nile in this collection. He says that they're born hearing the great sound of the waterfall, and it's only when they grow up and move 10 or 15 miles away so that they can no longer hear the sound of the waterfall that for the first time in their lives, they hear the sound of the waterfall <laughs> because they now have a negative with which to contrast their positive experience of hearing that sound. Yeah. And until you have that negative, you're often not aware, again, with your contemplative consciousness, of what it is that you're knowing or experiencing. Uh, is, is that the discarded image that he talks about, the people who live by the cataract of the Nile? Uh, I think it's actually in, a, in an essay, a lecture he gave called Imagination and Thought in the Middle Ages. Mm. So there may be something about it in the discarded image. Yeah. Um, well, uh, that's. Uh, I, I just feel like there's something really um, um, important here. I, mean, I know there is. You know, for for writers, um, you know, to understand this idea of a um, of uh, making you know, giving readers um, a way of of experiencing um, these these realities that are that are swirling all around us and um, and well I, you've you've uh, already um, given us a way to to think and talk about that um, and I, I appreciate it. I think this this is really uh, valuable stuff and, and and this idea of ex, of looking along the beam I think um, uh, in you know that that's that's where a storyteller, uh, a good storyteller, um, is is a person who who knows how to step into the into the beam, um, and and show what is what he sees he or she sees along that beam, um, and 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 it's such the ability to step outside the beam and look at the beam is that's relevant too, right? I mean, as as you pointed out, Lewis does both of those things and does both of them exceedingly well. Yes, indeed. It's, it's largely because he had spent so long a time studying the seven heavens and their various symbolic significations, uh, and, and indeed had been trying his hand at communicating them in various ways, academically, poetically, and in his trilogy of interplanetary adventures, that when he came to write about them implicitly, he was able to do it so skillfully. Uh-huh. Uh, because... If he hadn't been so steeped in these seven symbols, I think it 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 wouldn't have worked so well. It would have been in danger. He would have been in danger of of turning the books into, as it were, allegories of the seven heavens. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but they're not allegorical representations of the seven heavens. They it's, it's it's an almost unprecedented thing that Lewis has done. I think this is one of the reasons why the Narnia books are are such classic works that they are. They're doing something new, I think, in the history of fiction. Mm. It's absolutely brilliant what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, but he, I think he could only have done it so well if he had spent so many decades of his life contemplating the planets from outside. So yeah. that when he chose to go inside, as it were, he could do it so harmoniously and with, with such familiarity that I mean, he himself didn't need to think about it with his contemplative consciousness very much because, because he himself knew them 
He intuited them from inside already. Yeah, yeah. great. All right, well, uh, Mike, we're getting uh, close to the end of our time together, but I always like to end uh, these conversations with the question, who are the writers who make you want to write? <laughs> well, of course, C.S. Lewis would have to be one, yeah. probably the top of the list, uh, having, having read him so closely for so long. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I like about Lewis is that he writes in so many different genres and forms. Right. You know, he's, yeah. he's a master of, of different styles of writing. That's one of the most enviable qualities that he has as a writer, I think. Uh, but to get away from C.S. Lewis for a moment, well, it would almost be easier to ask the question the other way around. Which, which writers don't encourage me to write because <laughs> any writer who's who's worth his salt or her salt um inspires one to write in in, in different ways because yeah. you know it's, as soon as you see writing done well there's a little spur to you know imitating them or emulating them um it's the writers that are bad writers <laughs> that don't inspire me to write um Writers who are, you know, are clunky and too obvious and, um, or else are just self-indulgent and they have no care for the reader. Uh, but any, any writer who's, as I say, half decent, three yeah. decent or, or a positive genius like C.S. Lewis um, would encourage me to write. Um, I think my own gifts as a writer, I'm, I'm sad to say, my own gifts are, are more in literary criticism than in... Uh -huh. And in fiction and poetry, I, I wish I were um, cut out to be a fiction writer or a poet. And maybe maybe I, I'll discover within me at some point in the next few years uh, those talents, but I'm not sure I've been given them. Um, I, I seem to seem to have been equipped with a different set skill set of, of literary critical gifts and writing prose rather than um, yeah. non-fiction rather than poetry or fiction. Well, um, I uh, I have to say your your criticism in um, in Planet Narnia has has meant a lot to me, and so thank you for writing that book, and uh, thank you for taking a little time uh, to to talk to me today about uh, about Lewis and about writing. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, the Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.